0: race is on and it looks like heartaches and the winner loses all
1: Hello and welcome to the In the Ring Pedigree Podcast. I'm your host Peter Thomas Fornatal, coming at you from the Brooklyn Bunker once again. We're breaking format this week. It's actually kind of a hybrid of the In the Ring show and the In the Money show, given we've got a famous horse player guest, but he's got a lot to say about key industry issues. And I'm just going to go ahead and bring him in right now. Welcome to the In the Ring podcast. Uh, uh, A man I'm very pleased to call uh, an old friend and somebody who I always appreciate the chance to talk about life and racing with. Steve Christ, how are you?
0: Hey, I'm good, Pete.
1: We'll start off where I always start off with you. I want to ask you about what's going on with your gambling. How are you still uh, as active as you were playing horses the last time we spoke? And what does horse playing mean to you as we approach the end of 2019?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, generally, uh, I, I am as active. Uh, I was playing regularly and uh, probably didn't didn't miss more than a handful of days since the beginning of the year at, uh, at Naira but I'm currently on my post Breeders' Cup uh, freshening. Uh, you, uh, you, you can't do this 12 months a year. And, uh, you know, to me, the, the Breeders' Cup kind of puts, puts a cap on the season. Uh, I will certainly wade back in if there are any gigantic carryovers and, uh, you know, some big cards like uh, the Cigar Mile weekend. Uh, but uh, I'm, uh, I'm generally uh, laying low for the month of November.
1: I know you're taking this retirement thing seriously, so while you're not playing horses and have this opportunity to lay low, what type of stuff are you, uh, are you working on or are you doing?
0: Uh, I, uh, I'm, I'm quite happy being uh, retired in general and uh, in enjoying uh, reading and uh, playing the piano and uh, behaving like a retired person.
1: <laughs> that's fantastic i know you've made a foray into horse race ownership what's the latest on that front
0: yeah well uh we have uh my partner ken direct and i have uh two yearling purchases uh that are uh, both in training uh we have a uh a two-year-old verrazano filly uh who's with bob dunham at Aqueduct, uh, Bob is our trainer, Phil Gleaves, his father-in-law. And since she's in New York, Brad, uh, we thought it was wiser to leave her up here for the winter rather than taking her down to uh, Tampa, uh, which is where Phil is, uh, managing Peter Begso's farm for the winter near Tampa. Uh, so uh, she's with Bob at Aqueduct. We're hoping she'll get to the races uh, before the end of 2019. And our three-year-old mine shaft filly, Uh, who has run twice and not run particularly well, uh, has just had one little problem after another. Uh, You know, I've heard from other owners in 40 years around the racetrack, oh, it's always something. You wouldn't believe how easily they hurt themselves and sideline themselves. And I've been living through that, uh, you know, for the the last year with her. Uh, But uh, she will go back into training uh, she's down uh, with Phil in Ocala. She'll go back into training December 1st. Uh, if, uh, if things work out great, we'll uh, run her next year. Uh, if things don't work out, we'll breed her next year. We've, we've
1: got a lot of your fans who are listeners to this show, so I'm going to bother you to give the names for stable male purposes so we can make sure to follow along with these two. What, what, what names are we looking at?
0: Okay, the, uh, the three-year-old uh, Mineshaft filly is named Mineshaft Blues. Uh, she's by mineshaft out of arahi Mare, and uh the verazano two-year-old filly is named viva zano she's by a verazano out of uh, viva malala and she comes from that uh, neat old earl mack family uh going back to adirahi uh it's the family of ichabod crane and uh ruth Ariane, and and all those so uh You know, her future might be on grass, but uh, so far she's behaving like a racehorse, fingers crossed.
1: That's fantastic. Definitely will be following the progress of those. Since you mentioned the Breeders' Cup being such an important signpost in your betting year, how did things work out for you at the Cup from a betting perspective?
0: Well, unfortunately, I I chickened out of playing the pick six. Um, (laughs) I was skeptical of Sister Charlie but still thought there was, you know, a good chance she was, she would win. And that was the first leg of the pick six. Um, I didn't want to go either way. You know, I didn't want to go seven deep and end up with a, you know, very possible four to five winner. Um, I didn't want to single her. I I didn't like her, her last race at, uh, at Belmont, you know, where she beat Mississippi by a length and, and it got a slow figure, uh, but she, you know, she's been such a great race mare. So I, I made that horse player decision that we all do sometimes. I just froze. I said, you know what? I'm not going to get involved in the pick six. I'll just play the pick five. And, you know, the rest of the sequence is fine. And I had the late pick five. But, you know, that was a 55000 for a dollar pick six uh, that was halvable. So, you know, while I, uh, I came out, slightly ahead for the day, I still feel like I made a major tactical mistake.
1: Now, is that results-oriented thinking? I mean, to me, going in, the decision to pass was very, very sound, and it's very easy after the fact to say that. But, I mean, when you go back and examine that decision, I get what you're saying. You know, we're talking after the fact, and it makes sense to say you chickened out. But in the big picture of life, was that a mistake or not, do you
0: think? I, I still think it was it was a good decision at the time. You're right, it is results-oriented because the rest of the sequence, you know, turned out to be haveable. Um, you know, the, the races that scared me the most turned out uh, to be more manageable than I thought they would. And, you know, there was not an illogical winner in, in the sequence the rest of the way. I mean, you know, I, I thought Midnight Bisou – you know, was a very, very likely winner. But, you know, Blue Prize was a backup, was one of the few alternatives. And, you know, frankly, everyone else was an A in my ABC way of thinking. So, uh, you know, you, you, you feel like, you know, you, you can't pass up half of all $55,000 pick sixes. But that, that was the decision I made going in. It was
1: a tough call on Sister Charlie. I was curious if you have any advice as a a horse player going forward. We don't do a ton of nuts and bolts handicapping on this show. That's often over on the In the Money shows. Here we talk a lot more about pedigree and sales stuff, but it's just such a good opportunity to to look at that question of when do you decide when you look at the horse, and clearly uh, the last race wasn't the top form, but... There's another target in mind. You can come up with all these reasons to, to excuse it and expect her to bounce back to her, her last race. But how do you make that? What, what handicapping tools do you use other than just speed figures to, to determine when that last race is maybe indicative of a horse going a, a little bit the wrong way in the form cycle and when it's just a prep race or a blip on the radar that you can count on them putting their A game next time?
0: Well, I, I think you've really, you know, lasered in on the, on the problem, which is what what do you do with the one subpar performance, especially when it's the penultimate race of a horse's career, when clearly there's a bigger target in mind there, um, and and that's the call that you have to make, um, you know. That was a good race to play uh, separately on its own. If, if you were skeptical of Sister Charlie, I just didn't want to stake my entire Breeders' Cup day on whether I was making you know, the, the right or wrong call there. Um, so, you know, I just watched.
1: Well, and sometimes that's the the best tool that we have as horse players, isn't it, the ability to to pass races. Once in a while, it'll uh, it'll bite us in the nose, but in aggregate it's it's an important uh, tool in the toolbox. You mentioned the ABC betting strategy, which of course you're one of the people who really uh, brought to the masses. I was curious with as sophisticated as wagering is, in 2019, and there being, to my view anyway, a lot less meat on the bone in terms of wagering value in, uh, in the multi-exotic pools today than there was even five or ten years ago. Do you still find that the ABC method, as espoused in your book, Exotic Betting, is enough to give you an edge betting-wise over the competition, or have you made any tweaks and changes to it to reflect changing times?
0: I haven't made any tweaks or changes, but I I couldn't agree with you more, and I I think it's an under-discussed issue in racing, uh, that the sophistication – uh, of the computer-assisted wagering players who account now for something like 30 to 50% of some of these big pools in the multi-race pools uh, has made it a lot more difficult to win. Uh, th- this game, I believe, has gotten a lot harder in the last five or ten years. I mean, that's not a complaint. I, I applaud people who put in the time and effort and, you know, have corralled big data and are doing very smart things. Um, you know, they're, they're not breaking the bank at Monte Carlo, but they're getting close enough to break even with their wagers that you put a rebate on top of that and they are grinding money out of the system. But, you know, unfortunately for the rest of us, the, the money that they are grinding out of the system, uh, is our money and simply being, you know, an above average handicapper does not guarantee you victory anymore the way that it did 20
1: are you surprised you've played as much as you have since your retirement?
0: Yeah, I really I really expect to be uh, playing, you know, as full-time as I was, but um you know, I'd call it a problem, but it's, it's not really a problem. But if, if, if you're going to compete successfully at the highest levels of this game, you have to pay attention full time. You know, you can't just jump in on big days and weekends. Um, you know, I, I don't like handicapping cards of races where I haven't seen everybody's last couple of races. And while we have plenty of tools now to go back and look at replays and look at charts, you know, through things like formulator, it's just not the same as having lived through the entire cycle of racing. So, you know, I thought I would be a far more recreational handicapper in my retirement, but I found pretty quickly you got to do the work. You got to pay attention if you're going to have a fighting chance.
1: I remember talking to you actually at your retirement party. At the time, you were operating under a theory that you miss so little if you only pay attention on Saturdays that you could you could have a pretty darn good idea of what's going on in the biggest races by paying attention, you know, one or or maybe two days a week. But obviously, over time, you found that not to be the case and and gotten uh, dragged back in. Uh, what do you think accounts for that?
0: I, I think that you know, you could probably just pay attention to stakes racing and then only play stakes races. But the problem is, for me is that I really like pick fives and pick sixes. And other than a few big days a year, any sequence like that is going to include, you know, some maiden and allowance and maybe claiming races. And if you don't know what's what's been going on in those divisions and you don't have a sense of, you know, how the last one or two races in each condition has unfolded and whether they were weak or strong races and who had trips and who didn't, you know, you're just going to be lost in those races. Uh, and I'm not ready to step back and say, well, I'm just going to make win place and show bets on graded stakes races. Cause that's all I'm paying attention to. Um, you now, plus having a, a couple of horses in, in training, uh, you know, I've wanted to pay special attention those divisions, two-year-old Philly, New York breads, three-year-old Philly, New York breads, uh, you know, uh, on the off chance that one of my horses actually gets to the races and is competitive. <laughs> you
1: mentioned the the CRW players and making the markets more efficient. What have you done to try to be more competitive? And you you, you talk about handicapping not being enough anymore and the ABC wagering, which I feel like provided such an edge back in the day, maybe some of that's been whittled away by these computer players. How do you continue to stand toe-to-toe and, and take swings in these pools against players who make the market so efficient?
0: Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not at all sure that I've really figured that out at this point. I, I do know that it's tougher. Uh, the sophistication uh, of, of the new players uh, has made, it's taken a lot of the, the value out of uh, the, the ABC kind of play because, the you know, what you're really hoping to do with an ABC multiple ticket approach uh, is that if you're right in a couple of spots, in a couple of other spots, you can really go deep into a race. And, you know, as we all know in multi-race wagering, the whole trick is to get past the first three or four choices in the wagering. You know, if you can get a fifth choice and an eighth choice to win in the course of a sequence, you know, now you're in business and you knock all the smaller players out of the pool and, you know, you have a chance for something to pay four or five, eight times as much as it should. Um, when you have people with, with access, you know, to, to pools and knowing what combinations are and aren't covered and making extremely sophisticated plays where they're putting in, you know, thousands of combinations at the last second. Uh, Unfortunately, that means other people are getting down to those fifth and eighth choices, you know, that you, you used to kind of have all to yourself.
1: And in terms of the specifics of how you're constructing your pick sixes nowadays, is there any advice you could give? Uh, uh, maybe something that would be a chapter in a revised book about exotic betting, uh, a technique to graft on to, to, the, to the basics that you've laid out in there that might help? Or are you just trying to do what you've always done and, and hope that the results still uh, justify the
0: methodology? I I think more more of the latter. I I guess the the one thing that I try to do more than I used to um, is to be more discriminating in in narrowing uh, races. Uh, You know, you can't succeed at multi-race wagering just taking the three or four most likely winners in in each leg of a bet. You know, you've got to do more narrowing. You've got to get those fours down to twos in a couple of places, because that allows you to get the, you know, the fours up to eights in a couple of other places. So, you know, my, my tickets probably look a little different than they did 10 years ago. Uh, I, I'd rather try to eliminate that third marginal contender in a race that I've gotten down to three horses, because that allows me to multiply one of the other races, you know, at, at an additional 50%. You know, it's uh, two by six is better than three by four.
1: The, that's very, very interesting, and absolutely um, melds with uh, some of the stuff that Mike Maloney wrote about in in his book about being loath to get beat in spread races and really wanting to try to to whittle down and take out some horses that are going to be on other people's tickets. And the idea that that puts in my head is that in the modern era, it's almost as important who you're not putting on your ticket as the horses you are trying to get some value that way and separate from the crowd by being able to oppose some horses at the, at the lower end of the odd spectrum. Do you think there's something to that or is that an oversimplification?
0: No, I, I, I think that's, that's absolutely correct. And that, that really is the way to go. I mean, I've, I've found, you know, at one point a few years, years ago, I tried to do a little study of the races I'd gotten knocked out in, in, you know, big, pick fives or pick sixes. And more often it was the races where I went for five deep rather than six or eight deep. Um, You know, that it's not when you really think only two horses can possibly win a race, you know, unless they both fail to show up, you get through those races more often than when you take an impossible race and whittle it down from seven open horses to only using four. Uh, at least with me, I get beat more often in those situations than by being dead wrong in the only two of them can possibly win races.
1: One more wagering question, and this one is really down the rabbit hole for some of our uh, Lexington listeners, but hopefully they'll they'll bear with me because it's just a point I want to uh, ask you about. I was the biggest fan when they came out of the low wagering, Minimums. I thought here's an opportunity for the smaller player to be able to construct tickets like the pros, like the players with much bigger bankrolls. I worry over time that part of the efficiency we're seeing in these horizontal pools is down to the fact that the biggest players, the computer players, can use these lower minimums to cover more combinations and to bet them more efficiently in a way where it's actually helped drive value out of the pools. And I see, you know, obviously I missed the $2 pick six, but at least in a bet like the $1 pick six we saw on Breeders' Cup Day, I feel like for the serious horse player that those pools with a dollar minimum is a much more friendly situation, ironically, based on what I thought in the first place, to a 20-cent pick-six minimum. Have you seen any effect of these low minimums on the efficiency of pools? Uh, Is this something that—are these unrelated ideas that I'm putting together, or maybe there's something to what I'm saying?
0: Well, I think there's very much something to what you're saying in regards to the pick-six. Um, you know, I was responsible for, and I'll take the, the blame from those who don't like <laughs> it, for a lot of the lower minimums that have come in. And, and I fully support, low, uh, you know, dime superfectives are great, 50-cent pick fives, and pick fours are great. I hate rainbow pick sixes, 20-cent uh, pick sixes. The way it's played out, um, you know, because of the premium on, on mandatory payouts, and because of the bankrolls and power uh, of the syndicates uh, and the computer players, the 20-cent pick-sixes have just become uh, entirely a math game for very big players, Um, you know, which I realize sounds counterintuitive. At first you go, oh, great, we, you know, made them available at 10% of what they used to cost, and now everyone can play the pick-six. It just hasn't worked out that way. And and the other thing that, you know, I can't say enough times is that these rainbow pick sixes or empire pick sixes, they are a horrible bet except on mandatory payout day. Because, you know, I I think it's disingenuous of of Naira, for example, to keep saying the empire six has a 20% takeout. No, it doesn't. It has a 40% takeout. Um, You know, you can't divorce the fact that it doesn't pay out unless there's a single winner until mandatory payout date. So to play that thing on a daily basis, you're playing, you know, a 40 percent takeout bet. And that's not far removed from going and buying lottery tickets.
1: No, that's clearly the market they're going for. and. I'm working on some numbers. I should say uh, our numbers cruncher, John Camardo, is working on some numbers. John and I are working together on a piece about the economic effects of the Empire Pick Six, which uh, you know I'd love to get your thoughts on when that's when that's ready, Steve. But I was just surprised at how well the bet did in terms of the the handle at Saratoga, and I'm getting a little concerned that this is not a genie that's going to fit back in this particular bottle, and I'm thinking of. Trying to spend my energy to, to figure out if there's maybe a smarter slash more player friendly way to execute this bet because it sure to me doesn't seem like it's going to be going anywhere anytime soon. Am I not being ambitious enough?
0: No, I, I, I think we saw it at Belmont, um, you know, once the, the initial novelty had worn off. And look at Saratoga, everyone wants to be the king of Saratoga. And, you know, so I think people were at first like, Oh, great. I'm, I'm going to play this 20 cent pick six every day, but I mean, the handles on it at, at Belmont were anemic. I mean, there were days when it was like the old $2 pick six. Um, it, you know, it's a tough situation for a track executive. Um, you know, that it's a bad bet for your customers. You know, you know, it's a 40% takeout bet on a regular basis. And then that the big people swoop in on the, on the big days. So it's not a friendly or positive bet to subject your customers to. On the other hand, if it outhandles the old $2 pick six as strongly as it did at Saratoga, uh, you know how, how can you not put it in?
1: I can't wait to get your thoughts on this piece we're working on. I think we have some suggestions that would potentially lead to at least a more player-friendly way of, of executing it and maybe market it. Even a little bit more to the people who are attracted to the to the quote unquote jackpot uh, nature of it. But will that's a conversation for another time. We're going to pivot a little bit. I'll, I'll start with a question, sort of in between the matters we've been talking about and what I eventually want to get to with you. Do you miss writing about racing?
0: Uh, yes and no. Um, you know, I did. I did it for forty years. Uh, that's 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 plenty. Um, <laughs> I've, I've I've done my part, people. Be- people know where i stand on things um but you know uh, over the last couple of years with various issues going on in racing uh you know i wake up half my days going you know i want my soapbox to tell everyone why they're wrong <laughs> and saying boy am i glad i don't have to get up and and you know uh, do that on a daily basis it's, it's obviously it's a a difficult time in racing uh with uh You know, a lot of ignorance and and bad journalism and activism driving issues. And, uh, you know, it's everyone in racing. And this is just a a rough time uh, to be involved in horse racing.
1: Well, there's a lot to unpack in what you just said there. And this this gets to the meat of why I wanted to talk to you so much today. Because I understand why you maybe don't miss so much writing about racing. But I know for me and a lot of the listeners out there, we sure miss reading you because you were always one of those voices that I felt like could explain to me what was going on. And I look forward to the opportunity to read your words, whether it was in the New York Times or in the Racing Times or in the DRF and help shed light on situations that were difficult to understand. No situation that I've encountered in racing is as difficult to understand as uh, what we're dealing with now in terms of the, 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 the changing attitude, it seems like the changing attitudes about horses breaking down, specifically this um, controversy in California with the cluster of fatalities early in the year and the response to that. And I really wanted to get some thoughts from you about uh, about the situation in general. And I know from talking off air briefly that you and I agree that the situation we were sort of set up to fail by the, by the initial response to it uh, by Santa Anita. And unfortunately, I feel like it's kind of spiraled out of control from there. Uh, for you, when you look back at the situation, where did things start to go wrong for horse racing?
0: I think things began to, to go wrong with the, the coverage of what honestly mathematically was a very small spike in, in breakdowns at Santa Anita last winter. And you know, obviously, the record rainfalls that they had had something to do with it, and, and there were track maintenance issues. But you know, when we get to the end of the year, uh, the breakdown tally is not going to be out of line with previous years. But a, a completely alternative narrative emerged, as it does so often in society these days, uh, that suddenly, you know, horses were being mistreated. And we're dying by the scores uh, because of the failure of the racing industry to police itself. Uh, And, you know, the next thing that happened is that people in racing, uh, generally pro-racing people, decided to use this situation to advance their own personal agendas about completely irrelevant topics, uh, specifically Lasix and other therapeutic medications. And, you know, I think the third big mistake uh, was that the, the Stronach group thought it was smart uh, to make a seat at the table for animal activists. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, there may well be some well-meaning people who are members of PETA, but as an organization, uh, PETA wants to abolish pet ownership They would rather see 100 human beings die than to perform testing on a single animal. And these are not rational mainstream views. They are extremist activist views that most people, if they knew them, you know, would not continue to be PETA supporters and PETA is dedicated to the abolition of horse racing. That is their position, nothing less. They're not concerned citizens trying to improve a situation. And, uh, you know, whatever crisis management and public relations people, the Stronach Group involved themselves with, who told them, oh, no, no, bring them to the table. They'll be helpful. They just want to be heard. That was a terrible decision. And it put racing in the position of playing defense rather than offense. I happen to think personally racing has a pretty good story to tell about aftercare, about reducing breakdowns in general nationally. And I don't think there are any people in the world more dedicated to the safety of horses than people within racing. You know, Yet somehow, thanks to PETA, thanks to selfish people within the industry, who want to get rid of medications, who then dishonestly link them, you know, to horse fatalities. Uh, It's just made a huge mess where all that the average citizen knows is what he reads in the general press, uh, and a lot of it is just wrong.
1: Part of, I agree completely, and part of the problem as far as I'm concerned is in that those same press releases allowing PETA a seat at the table, I feel like they set the bar of what would be success in regards to uh, fatalities in so ridiculously high as to be absolutely impossible. The idea that 0% attrition is even reasonable. I feel like those press releases made it sound like that was an attainable goal. And the minute that was said, Anytime there's a fatality, which of course there's going to be, as we all know, horses can fatally injure themselves turned out in a field, let alone on a racetrack. I feel like as soon as that became almost a, I think it was literally a stated goal, um, I I felt like we could do do nothing but fail. But what, so I guess then the question becomes, what should we have done then? And that will segue neatly into the follow-up, what should we be doing now?
0: Well, I, I completely agree with you about you know setting a ridiculous bar, and it's very much like what's happened with medication. People who say horses should race on hay, oats, and water—that's ridiculous they never have and they never will they need other therapeutic medications do you not want to give them medications for ulcers or eye problems or you know the hundreds of other things that that happen to horses and that can be ethically humanely treated Uh, of course not Um, people who say they want zero tolerance for medication that's ridiculous that can't happen and it never will happen but you start saying things like that, and then you get animal groups saying, we will not tolerate a single death at a racetrack. That's impossible. It's not going to happen. Uh, nobody likes to talk about acceptable risk and acceptable levels of death. But I'm sorry, that's the way the world works. Um, you know, Look at, at pet ownership. Look at the tens of thousands of, of you know, pets who are in accidents or hit by a car. Or, you know, the millions that are euthanized every year. Well, nobody's proposing that we abolish pet ownership as a result of that other, other than PETA. Um, and that's certainly not the view of, of, you know, more than a handful of people. Um, I'm, you know, life is dangerous. Racing is dangerous. You do the best that you can. And I think the industry is doing better. Uh, almost everywhere, there are new safety protocols. Uh, I mean, look at all the horses that they scratched going into the Breeders' Cup. It may have been overly cautious, but it was cautious. And to say this is unacceptable and, uh, you know, we can't allow racing to continue, that that's just wrong.
1: I love the pet analogy. I, I mean, it's upsetting, but I, I just think it's so apt, the idea that we intuitively, when we have pets, whether they're, from a rescue situation like uh, uh, pets I know you've had and a uh, 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 sometimes star of the show, Muggsy, the handicapping uh, Labrador, also in that group. But just by having a pet, it doesn't matter where they come from, just the cultural convention of having a pet, you're, you're tacitly saying you're okay with, with the, that, that level of attrition within the, the larger industry by supporting the cultural practice. I honestly don't think it's that different in racing and it's a question where we don't like that we hate that that happens we hate when a horse breaks down we hate the number of pets unwanted pets that have to get euthanized but it's a risk that we accept because of the unbelievable rewards that you get from owning a pet or that come as a result of racing and it's an argument i haven't seen really in the mainstream at all so i'm very glad you you brought that up I'm also curious, what other ethical arguments are we missing? I mean, there's been so much talk on the racing side of we take good care of our horses, we're taking better care of our horses than ever. I worry that's not going to move the needle, the cultural conversation, the people in California presumably right now being asked in front of their Whole Foods to sign the petition to get this ballot measure to potentially ban racing in their state. I want to know what other ethical arguments we as racing people, need to be making or are missing that can help us maybe try to turn the tide of public opinion in a place like California where, where this battle is happening for real?
0: It's, you know, it's very hard to turn the tide of public opinion on, on virtually anything these days. Uh, and and it, it is a real challenge. And uh, you know, I, don't, I don't have a five-point plan that, that will magically solve it. I, I think that one thing that racing has failed to do uh, is to really get out there the level of care and concern of, pe- you know, the people who own and train and race these horses. Uh, you know, they're the biggest animal lovers in the world. They're, they're, you know, we're all a bunch of softies when, when it comes to horses. Um, and this, you know, I think there's a, a stereotype out there that, you know, racing is conducted by, uh, you know, mustache-twirling plutocrats who, <laughs> you know, somehow benefit or, or profit from the death of animals. And, you know, that's not only disgusting, it's just crazy. Um, you know, if anyone has a, a selfish motive for a horse to be safe and sound and, and healthy, it, it's the people who own them, the people who, who you know, conduct races with them. Uh, you know, nobody has a more vested interest in the health and safety of horses than, than people who own them. So, you know, this, this idea that, that somehow evil people are killing horses for personal gain um, is insane. It's simply insane.
1: I know, and and, and insane is what we have to, what I feel like we as an industry have to try to combat right now. I know you said you don't have a five point plan, but in terms of advice that you would want to give, you know, we've got a lot of Lexingtonian listeners to this show, a lot of industry people who are not pleased with the industry response, going back to what we said. Uh, was happening in California more recently. It's, it's. I think the, the, the lack of a coherent industry response that's been troubling some of the listeners to the show who've reached out to me. Uh, do you have any words of advice for them, Steve?
0: You know, the, the one thing I would love to see happen would be to separate these issues uh, that people, unfortunately, many of them people in racing have mushed together. You know, the, the idea that therapeutic medications, uh, you know, like, like Lasix and, and Butte, have anything to do, uh, you know, with a small spike in breakdowns is just a flat-out lie. And there are people, I disagree with them, but there are well-intentioned people who would like to get Lasix out of racing. And, you know, rather than keeping that a, a separate scientific argument and discussion, Uh, They push that into this issue about horse safety, you know, giving horses diuretics, you know, so that that they will pee out water rather than taking their water away a day before a race doesn't have anything to do with horses breaking down. And to my mind, it's a hell of a lot more humane, you know, than starving a horse uh, before it races. But there are people in high positions in racing who see this breakdown spike as an opportunity for them to win their longstanding arguments about whether or not horses should be given diuretics, you know, a minor harmless therapeutic drug. And by continuing to conflate these unrelated issues, the industry is painting a picture of itself, you know, as as a drug riddled enterprise that just isn't true. I mean, the level of testing that goes on nowadays uh, is so stringent and so thorough and so high. And these people who want, you know, constant out-of-competition testing, they've tested, uh, I believe, something like seven or 8,000 horses out of competition, and they've come up with two positives. You know, this is not a drug-addled, drug-riddled game. It just isn't. It's a lovely fantasy, fantasy to say horses should only race on hay oats and water, but it's never been that way, and it never will be that way. So please could you know the, the, the anti-lazy zealots stop pretending that that has anything to do with horses breaking down. It doesn't.
1: Seems like a great place to start. It also seems like there may be some proponents of the Horse Racing Integrity Act who've Seized upon uh, this opportunity to put forth to put forth their their agenda. Look, I'm not I, the way that some of these states have handled uh, some of these issues. You're gonna probably think it's crazy, but uh, I get the idea that some sort of federal oversight is appealing in some ways in this game where we have these. Uh, warring fiefdoms all the time. But but I worry it's not going to be, obviously, quite as, as simple as it sounds. And I'm going to guess you think that's another thing that should be completely left on the side in these discussions when we're just trying to defend the idea that our world is an ethical one?
0: Yeah, because I, I don't think they're related. I really don't think that the Horse Racing Integrity Act has anything to do with, you know, these breakdowns that have happened. Uh, you know, and it's It's a separate discussion. Uh, I'm very wary of of federal intervention uh, into this sport. Uh, You know, look what a great job the federal government does with everything else that it gets involved (laughs) with. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical of it. But whether you agree with, you know, the Horse Racing Integrity Act or not, Please don't don't pretend that it has anything to do with breakdowns. It doesn't.
1: Yeah, and I agree. Just to clarify, I agree that it doesn't. It just seemed like another one of these areas that was getting uh, that that was getting dragged into the to the conversation, or could be potentially motivating. Uh, some of the journalism that, that we're, and, and I'll use that in quotes that we're, that we're seeing that we're seeing about this issue. Uh, any other advice for, for the industry or for a lot of people listening who want to help and want to try to get the message out there? What, what kind of messaging do we need? How can we, how can we try to help people to be proud of what our business is, as opposed to being on the defensive when it comes to the, the, continuing of horse racing and 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 where we are is it is it too late for that or or is is there a way we can we can still try to talk about some of the positives and again i know you said i talked about how hard it is to turn the tide but i mean i i think i think for california if we've got a chance that's what we need to do is it realistic
0: I, i i think it is because i i believe that we're right and i believe that we have a good story to tell uh, I, I, I think that we need more people in racing to, to you know, to stand up uh, and not not to be, you know, de- defensive uh, or responsive, but to, you know, to proclaim that they believe in this industry, they believe in the good intentions of the people in it. Uh, I think we need all of our, you know, celebrity or semi-celebrity owners, uh, you know, to be a little more vocal. And, and, you know, not to then wander into medication and federal intervention, uh, et cetera, um, you know, or, or to use this crisis as, as a way to push their own agendas. They need to say in a credible way, uh, that, that this is a good game and it's generally well run and we're all committed to improving it. Uh, but, uh, there is no case to be made for shutting it down.
1: I agree. Great stuff, Steve. Thank you so much. So great to, to hear you speaking about these sensitive issues. I appreciate it. The listeners appreciate it. And uh, your open invitation remains. Anytime you've got uh, points you want to make, races you want to talk about, issues to discuss, uh, you, you've, you've got a platform with us. So good to get a chance to catch up. And thank you so much for your time today.
0: Well, I, I appreciate it, Pete, and my calendar my calendar's pretty clear these days, so uh, just <laughs> just let me know when you want me to vent again.
1: <laughs> thank you, my friend. That'll do it for this special edition of the In the Ring Pedigree podcast. I want to thank Steve Christ one more time for his help today. We'll thank Sean Tugel and J.K. in absentia. Most of all, I want to thank all of you, the listeners. A little bit of a departure on this show, but hopefully you all will enjoy it. This show has been a production of In The Money Media. In The Money Media's business manager is Drew Coatney. Our chief creative officer is Jonathan Kinchin. I'm Peter Thomas Fornital. May the hammer drop your way.